The Murti law firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Murthy Law Firm teleconference series. The topic for this session is Trump's memos in the past year. Basically, we're going to focus on the administration's policies and memos that will impact you as company owners, business owners, HR directors, etc. I'm really honored and pleased to have along with me two of my esteemed colleagues, Korzad Mehta and Joel Yanovich, who will join me in today's discussion. For those who don't recognize my voice, I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm, primarily acting as the moderator for today's session. By way of introduction, last year in 2018, we actually held a couple of teleconferences in August and in November of last year to provide and share with you an update on the various policy memos that had been released by the Trump administration. These memos clearly created a lot of buzz in the immigrant community, among immigration lawyers, and of course among employers, technology consulting companies and other employers, because it was not very clear how these policies would get implemented and how it would affect the business community. for instance, we had a memo that was issued relating to unlawful presence of F1 students, which is called the ULP, Unlawful Presence Memo. Another addressed the issuance of notices to appear or NTAs, etc. And since that November 2018 teleconference, there really haven't been any explosive memos that actually have been issued pertaining directly to the field of employment-based immigration. Obviously, that's not to say that there haven't been major changes within the field and within the administration, just that the formal issuance of memos has not really happened since late last year. So today we're going to go over the one memo that did happen um, soon after we had our teleconference end of last year. Uh, But first we're gonna look at the impact of some of the other prior memos and a discussion on the practical impact that we've seen in the months since they went into effect. So first let me start with you, Korzad, if I may. Uh, There's the RFE annoyed memo, which was passed last year in July of 2018. Is its bark louder than the bite? Sure, Sheila, and thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak today. So first, for our folks out there who may not be familiar with what an RFE is or what annoyed is, RFE is an acronym for Request for Evidence, and NOID is an acronym for uh, Notice of Intent to Deny. Uh, USCIS issues RFEs or NOIDs for pending applications or petitions when they want to determine additional uh, information to determine eligibility for the application or petition uh, filed. Um, The RFE NOID memo, as we call it in the trade, uh, came out around last summer sometime and then went into effect near the tail end of the summer. Uh, Initially, the fear was within the immigration community, within um, certain um, factions thereof, that USCIS would use the memo as a pretext to deny cases out of hand without providing any kind of meaningful opportunity to provide additional evidence or argument of eligibility. 
Um, this would have been particularly difficult gruesome. and gruesome <laughs> uh, for um, cases um, in the IT consulting or um, you know staffing uh, uh, field because it would have been a monumental change from where we had seen these kind of cases in the past or how adjudications went in the past. Um, USCIS heard the uh, immigrant community and before the memo actually even went into effect last summer, held public teleconferences, stakeholder engagements, where they stated that the import of this memo wasn't really to go after meritorious cases, but more to go uh, to ensure that frivolous cases or cases that were clearly ineligible on the record didn't adversely affect adjudications times because, you know, USCIS is a governmental agency. It has limited human resources, adjudicators, and the like. But with the amount of fees that they're charging from us, you would think they could hire a lot more in mm -hmm. investigators. They could hire more immigration officers to adjudicate petitions. Not an unreasonable thought. <laughs> um, so in the almost year now that we've had the memo since it went into effect, we here at the firm, as you know, have not seen it be the harbinger of doom that folks thought. USCIS appears to be implementing it in the commonsensical and reasonable manner that they discussed during the stakeholder meetings and the teleconferences. What about the whole issue of, like, even before they always rejected packages, sure. which is completely different than refusal? Because I think a lot of people use the word rejection and denial interchangeably, but actually a denial is where the USCIS collects and cashes the check, then denies, versus when the mailroom rejects, returns it back, and then basically says, we cannot process this case because the check amount is not right or you didn't include Absolutely. a critical document. But, and, and of course, of course, when cases are filed without those you know, really mandatory administrative um, requirements, they will get rejected. Um, though the practical effect of a rejection or a denial sometimes amounts to the same for an individual uh, applicant or petitioner, uh, yeah, a, a rejection is not on the merits, while a denial is on the merits based on eligibility, legal criteria. And when you say it is the same impact for individuals, are you talking about if there was a deadline to file? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so next let's talk about, um, so I guess we have, do, uh, uh, Joel, you wanted to add something? Oh, I was just going to move on to the, the other, the next memo. Oh, we'll okay. Make. So the next memo that we wanted to discuss, of course, was the memo on the accrual of the unlawful presence, what we call the ULP memo, uh, and which would directly impact the F, J, and M non-immigrants. So sure, go ahead, Joel. So this memo came out in May of 2018. We, we had, uh, when we had it, uh, our previous teleconference, we did discuss it. This memo really completely changed how FJ and M non-immigrants could begin to start accruing unlawful presence. Um, it's truly an insidious memo. It was designed really to harm this population, the population, especially F1 students who would then go on to be H1B workers, and to really make their life, I, I mean, it potentially put them in a situation where they would be barred for 10 years from returning to the U.S., where during which time they otherwise could be in H-1B status, um, for doing something, even, even inadvertently doing something, and then learning well after the fact that you, you did something that the government didn't like, and now they're saying you, you started accruing unlawful presence you know, over a year ago, and now there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on this topic because fortunately we don't really have to worry about this memo for right now. Um, a federal judge looked at it and issued an injunction back in 
May of 2019. Um, it's a nationwide injunction. USCIS cannot enforce the policy. And as of yet, there's been no movement on that. Um, I think USCIS may see that this memo, they were completely changing rules that are on the books, and perhaps they, this was a losing battle for them. So but was the whole issue about the violation of the Administrative Procedures Act and failing to comply with proper rulemaking that the government, the USCIS, was required to do by law? Yeah, this was a, b a big issue here um, related to this, and a number of universities and sta other stakeholders brought law a lawsuit against the federal government for this. And as of now, I, you can't say that they've won the lawsuit. Um, it is still pending uh, in front of the courts, but for now there's an injunction in place. It's not clear if anything's going to move forward, but again, for now there's there's really nothing that has to be done for this memo. So two very important lessons for all of us on this conference call who are listening and participating today is, one, if you believe the government has broken the law, violated the law, the Fed, welcome to America, the great nation that allows you to sue the federal government legally by following all the rules. And when you do that, and if they're violating the law, the separation of powers, the judiciary steps in and says, sorry, USCIS, you cannot do what you are trying to do in violation of different laws, regulations, and policies. And as Joel correctly pointed out, this would truly have been devastating because so many students unintentionally might have violated their status. Employers might have caused the violation. U.S. technology consulting companies or other employers might have violated the status of the F-1 OPT workers or the J-1 um, you know, um, um, students, changes, et cetera. And so having this truly, and this could have resulted in the three-year and 10-year bars applicable to these kids who hadn't even, didn't even have a clue that this could occur to them. I think it's important, however, to, you know, to really underscore that although the memo is not in effect, um, the, it has been enjoined by the federal uh, judiciary, by the, by the circuit court or district court even, um, that you know, status maintenance is still an important legal requirement for extensions of stay or changes of mm -hmm. status. And although this inj injunction removes the real, really draconian, um, or maybe draconian is not the right word, but really serious consequences that flow from a violation of, uh, of status and accrual of unlawful presence, uh, and then upon departure, uh, you know, the institution of a three or 10 year bar, um, status maintenance is still required to change status or extension, extend stay. So I think that folks still need to be mindful that, you know, even though they might escape the more um, deleterious consequences of a status violation due to this memo being enjoined, uh, they still have to be aware that if there's a question of status maintenance or if they haven't maintained status or if there's an, any other issue around their status that, you know, they may still require uh, departing the United States before getting another immigration benefit like a new status, and then they have to run the uh, run the uh, gauntlet with the Department of State at the consular, um, at, with the consular officer at the embassy or consulate. Exactly, and it doesn't help uh, where the USCIS conveniently changes the interpretations and the policies before you could do the 12 months F1 OPT, for example, and then if you went back and did CPT based on a new second master's program that was perfectly legally permissible. Today, the USCIS under the Trump administration says, oh, no, 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 you cannot. You are given a total of 12 months combination of OPT and CPT, which actually would violate some of the language in their own regulations. But 
it's like they're acting as the judge, the jury, and the executioner to a large extent against employers and employees. And so when they do that and a memo like this where they could retroactively go behind, go after you, could pretty much be like the kiss of death mm -hmm. for these individuals in particular. So I think we've, uh, the good news, as uh, Joel pointed out, and of course I'll also re reinforce, is that this is on hold because of the injunction, and we hope and believe that uh, no judge and no court will allow this kind of a complete reversal of the definitions and policies will occur without the government going through the proper rulemaking procedures as required under the Administrative Procedures Act. Next, we want to touch upon the memo regarding the issuance of NTAs or notices to appear for cases which involve inadmissible and deportable aliens. I know it sounds like scary terms, but for those who are not familiar, an NTA, as I just said, is a notice to appear. It's a charging document that is filed with the immigration court to start what's called a removal. That's the new name. The previous name used to be deportation proceedings against a foreign national. Last year, in July 2018, the USCIS released a memo that expands the circumstances under which they can issue the NTA or refer the case to the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, for NTA issuance. Keep in mind that all enforcement was technically supposed to be only by ICE under the U.S. Homeland Security Act of 2002, and USCIS wasn't supposed to be doing a lot of this enforcement and investigations, but they've conveniently started doing that. And this memo, again, is part of that whole, them trying to usurp that responsibility. So Korzad, can you better explain this issue? Sure, oftentimes an adverse decision like a denial can leave a foreign national without authorization to be inside the United States. The common kind of scenario of this is where um, an employer is filing an extension of stay for their foreign national employee. Uh, you know, the, uh, employers, especially our clients, are prudent. They try to prepare and file the extension as early as they possibly can, which according to regulations is no more than six months in most cases before the expiration of the status. Uh, but of course, USCIS's processing times nowadays uh, have become very, very lengthy. And if you don't avail yourself of the premium processing option, uh, which entails an additional $1,410 uh, fee, then it's not uncommon for the adjudication to be to go beyond the expiration of the individual status. Now, although the regulations do permit a 240-day uh, work authorization while an extension is pending, if after that period the um, the case is denied, the extension is denied, the individual is left without lawful status. And if you're present in the United States as a foreign national without lawful status, you are legally removable from the United States. Um, it is hyper, hyper rare for the um, government to institute removal proceedings and actively seek out a foreign national in that kind of situation uh, due mainly to resource limitations. Quite frankly, the U.S. government just doesn't have um, that many deportation or removal officers to process you know, all those folks who are technically removable from the United States, and they're supposed to be focusing more on criminals or uh, other individuals as higher removal priorities. Um, so in practice, we just have not seen it be a, um, 
a likely con- likely consequence that a denial of a benefit uh, in the inti- in the employment based context will result in a notice to appear being issued for a foreign national. I often get asked the question all the time after in each consultation, so will I will there be a deportation? Will I be kicked out? Will something happen to me on the date of my denial of my H1 petition or my L1 extension? And I usually say, well, you're allowed you generally are given up to 30 days to file an appeal and you know, they generally till today the USCIS hasn't been starting it, but according to this memo they are allowed, they're eligible, they could Again, I think if it is challenged in a court of law, maybe because they're starting to realize that they are getting so much pushback with lawsuits, and that, again, if this is going to happen and it's going to completely uproot somebody's life, I think this is another one of those that might be enjoined again. It, it's it's further reasonable for that fear that you're describing from um, the community of immigrants because you know, immigration to the United States has never been particularly touchy-feely, and I think we can all testify to that. But, um, you know, while previous administrations have made it a very, very clear priority that they want to go after, you know, criminal, uh, criminal non-citizens uh, or individuals of a higher priority, the um, the current administration, upon you know taking um, power in in 2017, kind of removed those priorities and made anyone who was uh, present in the United States without status. A, prior, a quote unquote priority for uh, removal from the United States. But l- let, let's be clear here with the memo, and th- this was the initial fear, is that they were going to start to issue these NTAs with the denial notices. Um, and so, first of all, uh, just so you understand, if, if you get one of these notices, even if they don't come and put you in handcuffs, that just issuing the notice has a huge immigration impact. If you were to then just leave without addressing the issue, you're not coming back for a whole long time. And Minimum so, five years. Yeah, so this is, it, it, we were very concerned that you were going to have suddenly, you know, high-skilled H-1B workers. So you hear on the news all the time about, quote-unquote, illegal immigrants. Well, the day your H-1B extension got denied and your I-94 had already expired, at that point you're technically an illegal alien. But in practice, you know, this happens all the time. It doesn't carry huge consequences. Um, even when you go to the consulate, as long as you reveal that you were out of, you know, you were unlawfully present for a couple of weeks because you had this denial notice, you had to get your airplane ticket, your affairs in order and leave the country. You did basically everything a reasonable person would do. The concern was, well, now the government's going to go one step further and basically make sure you, you can practically never come back. Before the memo went into effect, there was a lot of pushback on this. First of all, the government had a, a clarified that they were going to implement this in stages, so only certain case types were initially going to go through. Um, they specifically said we are not going to implement this for employment-based cases for now, so it does not apply to your I-129 petitions at all. Even if they did, though, they did clarify, and we've, we've seen this in practice, they are not as, as Sheila mentioned before, they're not stapling those denials. Uh, they're not stapling the NTAs to the denials. They have indicated that while they technically could issue the NTA at any point on, on day one onward, they are giving essentially giving people a reasonable amount of time to either get back in status or, or more likely get out of the country. Um, and so uh, basically what I would say is if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, if um, the NTA move, uh, NTA is not having a huge effect, the only time we've seen it really being implemented are people that stay long after their status has expired. Um, and so you're, you are seeing perhaps an increase in NTAs being issued because of the way USCIS is issuing them, but it's not having the devastating effect that ha- was initially feared. 
So if I can just add that for so some of these, for the employers, I guess, that are on this conference call or listening today, the memo has not been expanded to include I-129s, as Joel just pointed out. But even for the dependents who generally extend status based on the I-539 applications at the Murthy Law Firm, we have not seen NTAs being issued for them except uh, in during consultations or other situations in extreme situations where the family members may have remained in the U.S. for extended periods of time after their case was denied. But again, to uh, clarify one issue, when the USCIS said, mentioned that they would implement the NTA memo in phases, that, that they would actually first implement it against certain status-based applications such as I-485 and I-539 applicants, um, the interesting thing is many of you may have employees on who are on I-485 status and who are working based on the EAD card, the employment authorization document, with you for years because you assume that that's perfectly reasonable and valid for an employee to work with you. on. And for those people, they're threatening that if when they deny the I-485, they're much more likely to issue the NTA. But again, as we've mentioned we have not seen, there has not been a mass wave of NTAs being issued as was originally or initially feared. So I think let's, I think we've overall, unless anybody wants to add anything, we can move to the next one, which is the, which might be of great interest to many of our participants, memo on contracts and itineraries uh, requirements for H-1B petitions involving third party work sites. So as most of you remember, over a year ago on February 22nd of 2018, uh, the USCIS released a memo relating to H-1B petitions filed for workers who will be employed at one or more third-party or end-client work sites. The memo specifically targets staffing companies that use the petitioner-vendor-client relationship, which is basically to say that it probably targets almost all IT staffing companies and firms. One issue that was focused on by the memo is the requirement for non-speculative qualifying employment for the entire duration of the three-year H-1B petition time frame. And as anybody who is involved in the IT consulting industry knows, the contracts for IT services are usually measured in months, not in years. So Korzad, what exactly are we seeing? What's going on with this whole thing right now? Well, in the past, as you know, we used to see that where contracts and related documents submitted covered a portion of the period of H-1B validity requested, USCIS may not give that full validity period, but they take into account the history of the engagement, how long it had been in uh, play in the past, you know, what documents showed how it was going to be in play in the future, and would grant an H-1B approval for at least, you know, a one-year period. However, in practice, since this memo has uh, come out, we've been seeing increasingly that the USCIS is requiring that the documentation match up with the validity requested on the H-1B petition. Um, to that end, you know, we have seen an, an increasing frequency uh, petitions that are approved for less than a year, a couple of months. Sometimes the, approval, the, the validity period is for a period uh, that ended before the decision even came out. Um, so, you know, it, it's been it's been um, interpreted and implemented rather strictly. Um, memo also noted that employers had to verify employer a worker had maintained valid status throughout the entire period of H-1B time. That is, you know, an extension of what's always been the case. Um, and, you know, what the USCIS is doing increasingly now 
is really evaluating status and if the if they may even approve the petition but if they deny the extension of stay that as i said previously requires that the foreign national has to depart the United States and run the gauntlet with the consular officer at the embassy or consulate, which carries its own risks. Yeah. It's ridiculous. The whole thing about approvals for weeks or months or even retro already denied by the time you get the petition, it feels like daylight robbery where the government collects the fees and cashes the check, deposits it, and then gives you basically nothing. So, so Joel, uh, why has this issue and this memo been especially problematic for H-1B cap cases? Well, for H-1B cap cases in particular, it's been problematic because you're filing these in April. You're requesting an October 1st start date. And a lot of times, if you're an IT consulting firm, you may have a contract that's valid for, let's say, five months. Let's say it gets you, you know, through September. Um, and at the time you're filing, you know you're going to get that extension. You're going to be the same project. You're going to be working for the same client. Um, ideally, uh, there are cases where, where that's not the case, which is a much bigger problem. But let's say you're going to be having working on the same project, the same client. The government can come back and say, well, we want to see the, the SOW showing that you had this project available at the time of filing. Well, you had the, available, uh, the project available at the time of filing through September. And then, you know, late August, you got the new SOW that took you back for, you know, another, let's say, through the end of the year. You submit that, and the government comes back and says, well, you didn't have the work available at the time of filing, so we're going to deny the cap case. So, you know, we've been telling – now, that's not always the case. There are, you know, arguments that can be made that even with the evidence that you have, you can still get it, get it approved. But we've been seeing this, and if you get a cap case denied, if you, if you get it approved even for one day, for just for October 1st, you've been counted against the cap potentially. But if you have it denied altogether, you're out of luck. You can't file again until the next year. And so, um, you know, we've been seeing this. Another thing we've been seeing, so the, the issue about um, having the, the, the chain of contracts, it's probably next to specialty occupation, the, the most common RFE issue that we've been seeing. And they'll now ask for things like, well, we want to see uh, the, the SOW or the MSA from the end client that, that specifies the specialty occupation work available. They want to have job details in these contracts. Well, I've seen a lot of these contracts in my years, and I'm telling you, most of them do not specify job details. There would be no reason to have specific job duties in these contracts or the, the MSA or the SOW. And the USCIS undoubtedly knows this. So when they're asking for something that they know practically never exists, um, they're, you know, we, we understand what they're doing, we understand why they're doing it, and it, it is not because they're trying to protect the immigration system, it's that they're trying to make your lives more difficult. So you have to be, and you know, we'll, we'll come back to this, but you have to be more diligent, more careful than ever when you're filing these. They're trying to discourage you. Don't, don't let them discourage you. You just have to fight harder. You have to fight smarter. You have to have thought about this through prior to filing. What is it that I'm going to need to do? Okay, I know I'm not going to get, you know, X, Y, and Z documents, what can I get to at least make these arguments or at least have a reasonable chance by making these you know, strong legal arguments about how I could potentially get the, my, my case uh, approved? Thank you, Joel. So, yeah, so it clearly is very, very troublesome, uh, especially for most of the consulting companies on this conference call to feel like you're paying all this money in filing fees, legal fees, processing fees, premium processing fees, et cetera, uh, and in exchange you're getting really almost a few days, few weeks, or sometimes nothing, a denial, um, especially for people you've had sometimes extensions, and especially, like we explained, cap cases. Uh, the, 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 the last memo that we're going to talk about for today's teleconference is the 
perhaps the only significant memo that was issued in late 2018 since our no, last year, 20, November 2018 teleconference on the topic of policies and memos dealing with the Trump administration. And this memo deals with satisfying the one-year requirement, foreign employment requirement for L1 classification. So rather than get into details, Korzad, if I ha ask you to explain it. Happily. So for L1s, a person must have worked in a qualifying position for a related company abroad for at least one year within the um, three um, previous years. This one in three rule is fairly straightforward for an initial petition, where the person has been working abroad for the foreign company immediately prior to filing. Um, rule can get a bit tricky, however, in situations where the foreign national employee, the beneficiary, has been in the U.S. already for more than two years, meaning that they could not possibly have been working for at least one year in the past three years abroad. And at least part of, part of that time in the United States, that person was working for a related U.S. entity. When this occurs, the question arises as to whether the person is automatically disqualified from L1 consideration or if they can possibly still qualify. Part of, this, uh, answer, uh, part of the answer to this question has long been known. For an L1 extension, where the person has been in the U.S. for a few years working for the U.S. entity, the standard one in three rule obviously does not apply. But the USCIS looks at whether the person met the one in three requirement prior to being admitted to the United States, i.e. at the initial petition time. Otherwise, being in the United States for a couple of years in L1 status would almost always make it impossible to qualify for an extension. Yeah, and the memo essentially is, is clarifying for the slightly more challenging situation where the person's been in the U.S. for a period and is filing and obviously they were not working abroad while they were in the U.S. So what happens? When, are, when is the one in three year period you're looking at? Are you looking at the one in three year three year period immediately prior to filing? Or are you looking at the one in three year period prior to admission? So in short, what the and admission is when you enter when the you United entered, States the it, first time from abroad. Exactly. So in short, if you came to the U.S. and the primary purpose that you entered the U.S. was to work for the U.S. entity, then you're going to look at the one in three year period prior to being admitted. So let's take a simple example. You're working for the foreign entity for a few years in a qualifying, let's say, managerial position. And instead of coming in on L1, you come in on H1B. You come in on H-1B for the U.S. entity, you're working here for a few years, and for whatever reason, the company decides to move you to from H-1B to L-1. And there, there are some strategic reasons you may want to do that in certain circumstances. So if you've been working here on H-1B for a few years, you, you clearly are not going to meet the one in three year requirement by looking at the time directly prior to filing. But in this situation where, again, the primary purpose of your admission was to work for that related entity, the government allows you to look at the one and three year period prior to admission, prior to coming into the U.S., in this case, an H-1B status. If, however, the primary purpose you came in was to do something other than to work for that, that entity, so maybe you came in to work for a different entity, or maybe you came in and you came in on F-1 status and you got CPT and you're working for the related ent entity on CPT, in those situations, the government will say, well, your primary purpose was not to work for that entity. For F1, you, your primary purpose was to study. For uh, H1B, if you work for an another entity, obviously, your primary purpose was to work for somebody else. 
And in either of those situations, they're, they're not going to give you this benefit. They're going to basically say, we're only going to look at the one and three year period immediately prior to filing. And so if you've been here for a couple of years and one of those statuses for, for two, more than two, two years in a day, you're not going to meet that requirement of the one year. And within I think it is years. extremely confusing for people, but I think it is clearly makes sense if you're coming to work for a related entity they're much more generous in interpreting the role and if you look at it that way then it's easier to understand and remember the nuances of it so as we're getting ready to wrap up because our goal always is to stay within the 30 to 45 minute time frame um you know in 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 today's highly negative and anti-immigrant environment the number of RFEs and denials continue to increase dramatically, and I guess all of us can attest to it. So for you all as employers or HR personnel, it is important for you to be more proactive and work with your lawyer or law firm or your legal team to increase the chances of obtaining approvals, whether it is H-1Bs or L-1s or for the green card or any other non-immigrant status or immigrant status filing. Uh, of course, we at the Murti Law Firm continue to push back and respond strongly and aggressively. We fight hard to succeed and win approvals. We still have a very nice, overwhelming majority of cases being approved at the Murti Law Firm. Um, and so it is important for you to push back, to fight, as we've said earlier in our discussion. If you believe that there is a violation of the law, file a lawsuit, challenge the administration, I know we could continue the discussion, but I think you pretty much, this, the idea was to share with you an update of what's going on. And on behalf of Korzad Mehta, Joel Janovic, and myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm team and staff, we wish you um, continued success, a wonderful summer, and we look forward to continuing to help you succeed in your business. Thank you very much. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.